way, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study tonight, I think we should all take a few minutes to make sure that uh, we're in fellowship. Use of 1 John 1, 9, if necessary, to get past all the worries and anxieties and frustrations of the last 24 hours. Put our focus on the eternal realities that Jesus Christ controls history and that the only thing that really matters, the biggest part of the effect that we have on history is our own spiritual life. And as long as we are focused on that, then it doesn't matter what other things happen. That's the critical function. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to come together to study your word and to look at the overall plan that you have for human history and how you are working things to an ultimate conclusion that in each age you are teaching mankind certain principles, you are teaching the angels certain things about yourself, you are exhibiting to both angels and man your righteousness and your justice. And you are demonstrating that man on his own and any creature apart from you is incapable of achieving any level of happiness, meaning in life, or stability. Now, Father, as we continue this study, may we be impressed with the scope of what you are doing and that, that your grace is indeed magnificent and beyond anything that we can ever imagine, that we might be moved to uh, greater obedience to you, to make uh, learning your word, learning about you, having a relationship with you the number one priority in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study on God's plan for the ages, dispensations and covenants. We've looked at definitions for dispensations, that it focuses on how God is administering His uh, plan through human history, that that administration changes from age to age, and that it is on the basis of continuous and increased revelation that God moves the human race through uh, the um, moves from one dispensation or one administration to the next. So tonight we are in our ninth lesson on God's plan for the ages, and I think we just might finish the Abrahamic covenant this evening. This is the most significant of all of the covenants because every covenant that we study from this point on, even including the Mosaic Covenant, which is a just a temporary function of the Abrahamic Covenant, every covenant that we study from here on is developed out of the Abrahamic Covenant. So it is crucial to understand the Abrahamic Covenant to be able to understand both what God is doing in terms of salvation, what God is doing in terms of the spiritual life in the church age, and to understand God's plan, future plan for Israel and what is going to take place in the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. Now, we have looked at the initial age, the age of the Gentiles, which is divided into three uh, dispensations. The first dispensation begins with the Edenic Covenant, which takes place in uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, inaugurating the dispensation of human perfection. That ends when man sin, sins and the Adamic covenant is instituted, which is the modification of the Edenic covenant. That begins the dispensation of conscience, which ends with the destruction of all but eight human beings because of the disobedience of the antediluvian civilization and because 
the genetic pool has been uh, polluted by the infiltration of the uh, demons. So God once again revises the original creation covenant. This time it's called the Noahic covenant, and that introduces the third dispensation, that of civil government. That ends in failure at the Tower of Babel, and at that point, rather than working through the entire human race, God is going to work through one individual. He is going to call out Abraham, and he is going to give Abraham a special type of covenant. Now, we have studied in the past the fact that these covenants mirror, these, these covenants in the Scriptures mirror or reflect um, <clears throat> God's covenant, and they are patterned after a uh, secular treaty form or covenant that was popular in the uh, second millennium B.C. called the suzerain vassal treaty form. Now, we have to remember that a covenant is a contract between God, who is the party of the first part, and man, who is party of the second part. And in the contract, God is viewed as the king. He is the sovereign who is making a disposition toward man, obligating himself to bless man on the basis of grace, to bless man who is the party of the second part. The concept of a suzerain-vassal treaty form, just to give you a little definition, a suzerain is a term that describes a nation, first of all, a nation that controls another nation in international affairs but allows it domestic sovereignty. In some way, we could say that's a typical of, uh, or it was exemplified by the old Soviet Union and then the satellite nations, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, um, those were all uh, vassal nations. It's the same concept. That's just a modern term, and we talk about a, a nation and its uh, client nations in that sense. Or it can refer simply to a feudal lord. Now, in the ancient world, the suzerain could be like the king of the Hittite Empire, or he could be the Assyrian king, or he could just be uh, the king of a city-state in uh, Judea, such as Hatzor or one of the other <coughs> larger cities, Jericho, Ai, something like that. We'll see examples of that in our study of Judges. The vassal is a term that refers to someone who holds land or who holds title to his, his kingdom on the basis of the privilege granted by the great king, the great lord, the uh, suzerain, and who receives protection from the suzerain in return for his homage, allegiance, and, and uh, loyalty to the suzerain. It also describes someone who is in a, a bondsman position or a slave or a subordinate or a dependent. And I think this is important to understand because later on, to, in fact, today I had a phone call from a friend of mine down in Houston, and he was asking about a, uh, the interpretation of a somewhat uh, problematical passage in Matthew, uh, Matthew 25, to be exact, and we were working through the concept there because in that particular parable in 24 and 25 of Matthew, uh, Jesus is answering the question, what are going to be the signs of my coming? So he's not talking about the rapture, he's talking about the second coming. He's giving the signs of his coming in Matthew 24, which are going to relate to what happens in the tribulation, not preceding the tribulation. And then he concludes that by emphasizing the fact that those people, the saints living in the tribulation, need to be alert. Then you have the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom are alert. Following that, they're ready, they're watching, they're preparing, and then there are the five that aren't. And then it goes into another parable talking about a slave. And I think that you have to understand that in that context, even though there's a very similar pa a parable over in Luke, they're not the same parable. They're not teaching the same principle. The one in Luke is talking about uh, uh, believers who are uh, have an inheritance of the judgment seat of Christ versus those who squander what's been given to them. And uh, the, the parable in Matthew 25 is talking about this, this slave who's not ready. And who's the slave that's not ready? It is Israel because Israel's in this slave relationship, this vast, feudal, vassal relationship. This is sort of an image that is used throughout the Bible to uh, convey Israel's relationship to God. And so these images that we pick up on that are borrowed from secular uh, society at that time, not only does it give us 
a tremendous uh, sort of reinforcement that the Bible was actually written at the time in which it says, see, the liberals come along and say, no, 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 this really wasn't written until after the uh, exile, and, and it's just a collection of various historical uh, oral traditions that have been handed down, and there's a lot of error there, and it's just all written in order to justify post-exilic Israel. But in post-exilic Israel, in about 400 to 500 um, B.C., they would have no idea that a thousand years earlier a certain type of treaty form was in vogue in the ancient world. And so what we discover is that the way in which these treaties, these covenants are structured, fits the historical cultural context of 1500 to 1900 B.C., which is exactly when the Bible says they were given. So it's just another uh, way of substantiating that the Bible is what it claims to be and was written when it claims to have been written. So we see that there's a suzerain-vassal treaty form that is, that is the background. It gives us a, uh, an illustration to understand these initial covenants, the, the Edenic Covenant, Adamic Covenant, and the Noahic Covenant. And then, in this context of Genesis 11, of the, of the Noahic Covenant, when all of the Gentiles are gathering together, they go to the Tower of Babel, they're, instead of scattering and filling the earth, they're gathering themselves together in one city, shaking their fist toward God, in order to assert their own, uh, their own power, making a name for themselves. God scatters the languages, scatters the people, and in the midst of all of this rank paganism and increased idolatry, one man stands out who is faithful under the terms of the uh, Noahic covenant, who's a faithful vassal, and that is Abraham. And so, because he has been faithful and as a vassal, then he is given a special grant. He is given uh, a grant of land in Palestine, and this is structured according to what was known at that time and what was called a royal land grant treaty. And what would happen is if a, there was the king of the, of, of the empire uh, or a great city-state was going to reward someone for their loyalty because they'd been a faithful vassal, then it would make them an unconditional free gift. And so that helps us to understand, gives us some, some uh, background. This is what we call isagogics, which is historical background, and an understanding what's going on uh, in the Abrahamic covenant. See, the Bible must always be interpreted in the time in which it was written. So when we understand these secular contracts, then we can understand what was going on and how, how it made sense to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob that God would do this because this was something that they were used to within their, their cultural framework. We've seen that there are eight biblical covenants. The first three we've already examined. These are the Gentile covenants, and the Noahic covenant is still in effect and will not be rendered or removed from its effectiveness until the second coming of Jesus Christ, at which time uh, that will change. The Jewish covenants are the ones that we're looking at now, and the first Jewish covenant and the first uh, and the fourth are the uh, the first Jewish covenant, the fourth unconditional covenant that God establishes, the Abrahamic covenant, or it's the third unconditional covenant. The Abrahamic covenant emphasizes three categories that we're going to see: the land, seed, and blessing, which become the um, developed in the real estate covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And then there is uh, the, one or the one conditional covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant. Now, to Israel, we're told in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, that they possess the covenants. It is who, the Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. So the covenants belong to Israel, not to the church. This is so important in understanding and being able to understand prophecy. People come along and they say, well, I can't understand prophecy, and why is it so obscure? God wrote the Bible in order to be clear. He did not write it in order to confuse and obfuscate and uh, distract people. He wrote it to clearly communicate. What happens is man comes along and adopts 
pseudo-systems of interpretation, and the result then is confusion. But the language itself is not confusing, and it is very clear. So last time we started with the Abrahamic Covenant. This was the outline, in case you weren't here and you want to get the general outline down of what we're doing. We're looking at the key scripture, which was Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 13, 14 through 17, Genesis 15, 1 through 21, at which time the land promise part is is, uh, specified as having a northern border on the Euphrates, the southern border was the river of Egypt. It was bounded on the west by the Mediterranean and on the east by Persia. So this is the land grant. It is given to Abraham by God. It is sealed and ratified by blood, and it is a during this particular ceremony in Genesis 15 when the sacrifices are split in half, laid out parallel, where you have the uh, two sides and, and it's sort of a walkway between them. And it, what was typical at that time, when two people entered into a contract, they would walk between the sacrifices. Well, instead of the God and Abraham going between the sacrifices, God caused, caused uh, Abraham to go into sort of a stupor, a conscious coma type of thing, so that Abraham was aware of what was going on around him, and he could see God passing through the sacrifices, indicating that God alone was binding himself to that contract, making it a unilateral contract. In Genesis 17, 1 through 21, the token of the covenant is given, that is circumcision. And in Genesis chapter 22, 15 through 18, the covenant is reconfirmed to Abraham at the time of uh, Isaac's sacrifice and God's provision of the substitute ram. So those are the scriptures. The persons involved were God, party of the first part, and Abraham, party of the second part, as the representative of the Jewish nation. We saw that there were 13 provisions to that, and... Uh, I'm going to move through this. This is, um, we've already looked at the first part of the chart. The second part is the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant, institutes or initiates the age of the patriarchs, and that will end with the Mosaic covenant. Now, the provisions, just to briefly run through them again, the provisions are first to develop a great nation from Abraham. Secondly, there is a provision of land. It's given as an actual piece of real estate in the Middle East with actual boundaries. Third, Abraham himself was to be, was to be blessed. Fourth, Abraham's name would be great. Fifth, those who blessed Abraham would be blessed. Sixth, those who cursed Abraham would be cursed. Seventh, in him... All nations would be blessed. Eighth, Sarah would have a son. Ninth, the Egyptian bondage was promised. And tenth, other nations would come from Abraham, and that's fulfilled in the Arab states. Eleventh, there's a change of name from Abram, meaning exalted father, indicating that his father was part of the aristocracy of Ur the Chaldees to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude, which was sort of a joke at the time because he hadn't even had Isaac yet. Uh, Point number 12, Sarai is changed to Sarah from princess to the princess or exalted princess. And then 13, the token is circumcision. So those are the 13 provisions. And if you want more on them, then you'll have to go back and get the tape. We categorize them in terms of Abraham, what was for Abraham, what went to the seed Israel, and what went to the Gentiles. And then under point E, we saw that the three basic motifs of the covenant are the land, seed, and blessing. So that every time you think of the Abrahamic covenant, you ought to think of land, seed, blessing. It ought to be automatic. Abrahamic covenant means God promised a land. There was the promise of a seed, which is fulfilled both in the nation and in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the blessing that through Abraham all the nations would be blessed. Now that is where we have come so far in our study of the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, the covenant is further confirmed 
to Abraham's descendants. Abraham had a total of eight sons through three different women. He had Ishmael, Ishmael through Hagar, the Egyptian slave of his wife Sarah. He had Isaac, who was the promised son through his wife Sarah. And then he had six other sons through, the, through Keturah, who was a, another wife. And those sons are the progenitors of many of the Arab tribes as well. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 2 through 5, God reconfirmed the covenant with only one, per, one of those sons, and that is Isaac. Isaac was the only one of the eight sons who were believers. All of the other sons were unbelievers, and in, despite the fact that they had this tremendous witness from Abraham, and despite the fact that they uh, heard the stories about God coming and visiting with Abraham and Sarah and sitting down and having a meal, and despite the fact that there were angelic visitations at that time. See, people think that if we just had all that today, that people would be saved. People rejected and crucified Christ when they had the second person of the Trinity on the earth performing legitimate miracles, and they rejected it. If we had those things today, which some Christians try to emphasize, um, thinking that that would convince people of the truth of the gospel, and it won't any more now than it would then, because the essential problem is not an empirical problem. The problem is not that we don't have enough empirical evidence, is that man rejects it because of his sinfulness because of his rejection of God. So seven of the eight sons were unbelievers. Only one was a believer. And God confirms the covenant with Isaac. It's important to note, it doesn't, because you are of the seed of Abraham does not make you a Jew. You have to be, because otherwise all the Arabs would be Jews. You have to be of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis 26.2 And the Lord appeared to him, that is to Isaac, and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath. That is, he's reconfirming the covenant. I will establish the oath which I swore to your father, Abraham. Notice, he says to you, Isaac, I'm giving you this land. Now, did Isaac ever possess the land? No, he didn't. Remember last time I said God promised to Abraham the land. Did Abraham ever possess the land? No, he didn't. And we're going to see why that's important in just a little bit. But it is crucial to understand that God promised to them the land, and they never actually possessed the land. In fact, they never owned the land. They were just uh, like Bedouins living in the land at the time. In Genesis 26.4, God continued to the, the covenant reconfirmation with Isaac. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Now notice what he says there. We're going to come back to this because I want to make an important point a little later on. But remember, he says to Isaac, years after Abraham is in the grave, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham. He's not saying, I was the God of Abraham. He's saying, I am the God of Abraham. The point, just so you don't miss it when we get there, is that this emphasizes the continuation of life after death and the reality of resurrection. So God here promises to, to Isaac and Isaac's seed the same promises, the same contract that he promised to Abraham. It is not merely to his seed, but it is to Isaac himself. That is very important to notice, that he has made these promises specifically with Isaac as well, not just his seed. Now, Isaac had two sons and the twins, and everybody's familiar with the story of 
of um, Jacob and Esau and how Esau was the first one out and Jacob was grabbing at the heel trying to force his way out of the womb. And so Jacob is, Yaakov is viewed as the supplanter trying to uh, take uh, the place of the older brother Esau. And of course that, played its, that motif played itself out in, in their lives. But it was to uh, Jacob that God reconfirmed that covenant, not to Esau. He chose only one son. Esau again becomes the father of a group of Arabs. And it is not, those Arabs are not part of the covenant. The descendants of Esau do not have a place in the covenant. Genesis 28:13, God reconfirms the covenant to Jacob. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Notice. Not just to your descendants, I will give it to you. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised." You. Now, I think there is a, although the literal emphasis here, I will bring you back to this land, was that he would, would uh, be leaving. But I think there's a clear subtext there that applies to resurrection. He would bring him back to the land to give it to him because during his actual lifetime, he would never, act, he would never possess the land. So it is with that covenant that Esau is excluded from the covenant line And the covenant goes only through the line of Jacob. So it is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in whom the Jews are named. And that's why God always makes the point, like when he appeared to to, uh, Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the promise is made to the the, uh, two sons. It's reconfirmed. And God not only says that he will give the land to their seed, but also to them. The covenant is then reconfirmed to the twelve sons of Jacob, and so that is why the Jewishness goes through the son, the physical descent through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this is important because in the context of modern confusions about understanding history and understanding the prophecy, you will hear on occasion somebody refer to the church as the Israel of God. Now, that term is never used in the Bible to refer to the church. Historically, there are two broad theological systems. There is replacement theology, and there is dispensational theology. The core issue, I think, in dispensationalism is the distinction between Israel and the church consistently developed throughout and and applied in all interpretation. Of course, that's based on an underlying uh, literal plain interpretation of Scripture. In replacement theology, Israel is taken out because of their rejection of Christ as Messiah. They are replaced by the church so that all of the blessings God originally promised to Israel are taken from Israel and now given to the church spiritually. So the church becomes spiritual Israel. In dispensationalism, Israel will ultimately receive all of the blessings and promises God gave to them, but during the interim period there is a parenthesis when God introduces a second people in human history, the church, that are distinct. They have a distinct role and a distinct basis, completely set apart from Israel. And that is foundational to understanding the spiritual life in the church age, 
and salvation as well as what God is doing in the future. And it is only in dispensationalism that you have this consistent distinction made between Israel and the church. And the problem is that that in uh, replacement theology then, they go to the passages in Galatians chapter 3 where it talks about the church, that we are in Abraham, we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, and they want to say that, oh, see, that makes us the spiritual Israel. Well, it doesn't, because you're not a Jew unless you're a descendant from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're not a Jew just because you are the spiritual seed of Abraham. You have to be the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before you can be a Jew. So that keeps the church. We may be the spiritual descendants of Abraham, but that doesn't mean we are, um, we are Israel. Now, this whole concept of um, the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never truly possessed the land becomes a uh, background to a conflict that takes place in the New Testament between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They were always arguing about uh, one particular theological issue in, in specific, and there were many that they disagreed on. The Sadducees were sort of the, the Jewish liberals. They were like the, I guess you would say, they were like the Reformed Jews of today, and the Pharisees were like the Orthodox or maybe the Hasidic Jews of today. They were the very conservative ones. The Sadducees did not believe in a literal resurrection. And so they were constantly baiting the Pharisees with their questions about the, uh, the, uh, uh, the resurrection and trying to set up all sorts of argumentative situations to get them caught in some sort of logical trap. And they tried that on the Lord. So let's turn to Matthew 22:23 and look at this uh, situation when the Sadducees tried to trap the Lord. Someone once said that, that uh, the fact that the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection was why they were sad, you see. Matthew 22:23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother is next of kin, shall marry his wife, and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, so here they're going to come up with this uh, hypothetical case. Always, always watch out when people come up with a hypothetical case, because they're, uh, they, they, I found hypothetical cases never happen in reality. They're usually designed to get you caught between the horns of a dilemma. Now, there were seven brothers with us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother, so also the second, the third, down to the seventh. Now, this is the background of this is what was called levirate marriage. Then under the Mosaic law, possession of land, which was the inheritance, stayed in a family. Even if you had to sell it off to pay your debt, at the end of uh, 50 years in the Jubilee year, all the land that had been sold out from under the family or to pay off any, any uh, bad debts reverted back to the family. So the family could never lose their possession, never lose the land. But if you were married to a man and... and uh, had did, and he did not have children, in order to preserve the inheritance to pass on to the next generation, then the widow could marry his brother, then have a child, and that child would be raised up as the son of the first husband to carry on his tradition and his name. That's the background. Now, and I think it was also another reason why it was probably included in the law was it provided a certain degree of social protection for a widow in the society so that she would not be left destitute without a means of income or without family. So anyway, that's the background for this. So here's this woman. She marries consecutively seven brothers, and each one dies childless. Of course, that would be somewhat suspicious. We might want to have a grand jury investigation, but last of all, the woman dies. Now, the question is given in verse 28. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. 
Now, that seems like only a lawyer would probably come up with a question like that. Verse 29, But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the question. See, see, not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. See, Jesus didn't pull any punches. He wasn't afraid of hurting anybody's feelings. He wasn't going to sit back and say, Well, you know, maybe we ought to just sit down and look at the Scriptures together. He just said, You're ignorant. And these are people who all have their PhDs in religion. He said, You're stupid and you're ignorant of the Scriptures And that's why you don't understand them or the power of God. So he just called the spade a spade and uh, did not uh, worry about whether or not it hurt anybody's feelings. See, today we live in a society when we're so so, uh, concerned about the possibility of hurting somebody's feelings because everybody's running around, they're so self-absorbed that they're wearing their feelings on their shirt sleeve and so they're constantly getting offended because of their self-absorption that it's, uh, uh, everybody's afraid to say anything and be honest anymore. Now, Jesus just lays it out and he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But, and then he goes to the real issue. He says, Regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Don't you open up your Bibles, people? I just love it. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what God said? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, a God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the living, of the dead, but of the living. See, here's Jesus building his whole argument on the present tense of the verb. This is why you have to get into the original languages and you have to understand syntax and grammar in order to exegete the scriptures, is because. Even a small item like the tense of a verb uh, is the crux of a, of a doctrinal teaching. And so Jesus is showing that the present tense of a me or hayah in the Hebrew, the uh, present tense indicates continuous life of Abraham, that even at the time of Moses, and that particular quote comes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, And so Abraham has been dead for about 400 years. Isaac's been dead for about 350. And Jacob's been dead for about 275. That um, God is still saying, I am their God, present tense, indicating they're still alive. They're just not alive on the earth. So therefore, there is life after death and there is resurrection. The principle here is that since God had made certain promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, especially regarding the possession of the land, and since they died without ever actually owning the land, that God is obligated to resurrect that person and eventually fulfill the promise. That's why he told uh, Jacob that I will bring you back to the land, and he will do that in the Messianic kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will actually possess the land. This also proves the resurrection because all of these men had died before God fulfilled his promise to them, so he must resurrect them to fulfill the promise. And that's the point that Jesus is making. In the Messianic kingdom, these men will own the land, and Hebrews 11 supports that because Abraham knew that if he sacrificed Isaac, God would resurrect Isaac, because of the promises God had made. So when Isaac went to Mount Moriah, he wasn't wringing his hands. What is God going to do? Why does he want me to sacrifice my only son? He was going confidently. He knew that whatever happened, God was going to raise Isaac from the dead, and so he wasn't worried, he wasn't concerned. He was passing the test with flying colors. Okay, that covers the confirmations of the covenant. And that brings us down to the next point, which is the present status of the covenant. The present status of the Abrahamic covenant. It is an unconditional covenant. It is a permanent covenant. And therefore, it is still in effect. It does not mean that there are, by calling it an unconditional covenant, it doesn't mean there are no conditions in the covenant, but that those conditions weren't prerequisites for the fulfillment of the blessing of the covenant. See, covenant theologians will come along and say, see, Abraham was supposed to be obedient, and so since the Jews were disobedient, that abrogated the covenant. 
But the covenant was unconditional. The blessings of the covenant were unconditional. But that doesn't mean that there weren't demands in the contract for them to be obedient. It's just that the covenant wasn't dependent on that. God never said the blessings are there only if you obey me. This is seen in Exodus chapter 2 when God hears the prayers of the Jews at the time of the Egyptian bondage. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the bond, their bondage, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God what? God remembered, this is an anthropo. Uh, anthropopathism, God remembered, God doesn't forget anything, he's just expressing God's policy in human terms, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. The New Testament itself does not change the unconditional nature of the covenant, and this is seen in Galatians chapter 3. And it's very important to understand Galatians 3 in light of this, so we'll take a look at it. Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Here we read, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds. So and notice how the Apostle Paul isn't going to base this argument on the tense of a verb. He's going to base his argument on the singular nature of the noun as opposed to the plural nature of the noun. And he exegetes the promise and says, He did not say to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. Therefore, that refers to Jesus Christ. What I am saying, now he says in verse 17, What I am saying is this, The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now, this introduces an important terminology here, the word promise, as associated with the Abrahamic covenant, which is one of the terms that is picked up and used for that to describe that dispensation. But Paul's argument here in verses 16 through 18 is that, that whatever the purpose of the Mosaic covenant might be, it could not nullify or set aside a previous unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant can't be abrogated, nullified, or set aside by a conditional covenant. And so it is this covenant that begins the dispensation called the dispensation of promise or the dispensation of the patriarchs. And this dispensation lasts from Genesis chapter 12 to Exodus chapter 19. So we have gone through all the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant and that introduces the dispensation the first dispensation of the age of Israel called the dispensation of promise or the dispensation of patriarchs. Now, this is the outline that we'll cover in explaining the dispensation, who the central person is, the name of the dispensation, the responsibility in the dispensation, the test, the failure during the dispensation, the divine judgment in the dispensation, God's grace during that dispensation, and the volitional issue. That's what we're covering in each and every uh, dispensation. So I'll leave that outline on the board and just run through it rather, rather briefly. First of all, the central person is, of course, Abraham, because he is the representative head of the nation. God makes the contract with Abraham. Because it focuses on the three key people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are the patriarchs of the, of the nation Israel. Abraham is the, um, Abraham is the father of the uh, Jewish race. Always have to maintain that distinction that Abraham is the father of the Jewish race. It's Moses because of the law, the lawgiver, that he is the father of the nation. Abraham is the father of the Jewish race. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
are the fathers of the Jewish race. So this is called the age of, of the patriarchs. It is also called the age of promise because of Genesis chapter 3 and the emphasis on the promise that uh, God made in his revelation of the Abrahamic covenant. And verses on that are Romans 4, 1 through 20, Galatians 3, 15 through 19, Hebrews 6, 13 through 15, and Hebrews 11, 9. Let me go over those again. Uh, for the dispensation of promise, terminology, Romans 4, 1 through 20, Galatians 3, 15 through 19, Hebrews 6, 13 through 15, Hebrews 11, 9. Now, the responsibility in this period was for the Jews to stay separate from the Canaanite nations around them. That was one of the purposes for circumcision, was so that every time that a Jewish male went to the bathroom, he would be reminded of his unique status. See, God always... He's not real complimentary times in the Old Testament of Jews. Now, I'm not making an answer. But God is always recognizes the fact that the Jews are stiff-necked and rebellious, and so he knew that they needed to have a continuous reminder of their unique status. And that was one reason for circumcision. It would set them apart as unique and distinct from all of the nations around them, and they were to maintain their distinction. And that is seen in the concerns of Abraham and Isaac and and. Uh, uh, Jacob, to some extent, in, in their finding a wife. When Abraham wanted a wife for Isaac, he sent uh, Eliezer off to, uh, to the relatives back in Mesopotamia to find a cousin for Isaac to marry. And, and Isaac did the same thing with uh, Jacob. He wanted to have them marry closely within the family, and he protected them from the Canaanite structure. But Jacob, even though he was concerned, at least as far as his, his uh, marriage went. He, he wasn't concerned with his children. And we see that there was a breakdown, that, that they were assimilating to the Canaanite culture, that, that Dinah went off and, and was trying to uh, seduce one of, the, uh, one of the princes of Shechem. And, and as a result of that, that two of the other brothers went in and, and slaughtered all the men in Shechem. And, and then there were other various episodes with Judah and Tamar. And it just reads like a you know, sex and violence-filled soap opera because the, they, they just failed to assimilate, I mean, to uh, maintain a distinctiveness uh, from the pagan culture around them so that God had to do something to protect the nation. If they are not going to maintain their responsibility of being distinct from the uh, Canaanites, and that was also the test, then God would have to punish them. They failed and intermarried with the Canaanites, uh, uh, and, and began, the sons began to intermarry with the Canaanites. So in order to uh, protect them, God had them taken to Egypt. That's what happens because the Egyptians were extremely anti-Semitic at this time. They were probably as racist towards the Jews as any culture ever has been. And they wanted to keep them completely isolated. And the Egyptians would not intermarry with the Jews at all. They found that to be extremely distasteful. So this was a great place for God to send uh, Jacob's family. And he did that through an interesting way of working out the details around uh, Joseph's being sold as a slave to the Midianites and then take him down to Egypt and sold as a slave to Potiphar's house and then Potiphar uh, his wife uh, falsely accused him of rape, so he was thrown in jail. And then eventually, after a period of time, he's released, and then he is uh, raised to a level of second highest authority in the land. Who would have ever expected that? And as, as Joseph said to his brothers when they finally came and he revealed himself to them, he said, God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so we see in that that Jesus Christ controls history and that despite all of the, uh, all of the conspiracies and all of the uh, planning and all of the uh, hand-wringing that goes on about political fortunes and leaders and everything, God is the one who is working behind the scenes 
to bring about exactly what he wants to bring about without necessarily violating human volition. So there was failure on the part of Jacob's family to maintain their uh, set-apart status. There was divine judgment which brought them down into Egypt to enforce their separation, and there they became slaves and were down in Egypt for 400 years. The grace factor is that God preserves the nation both ethnically and spiritually, and they prosper even in the midst of slavery. Even if you, if you work through the numbers, the, the uh, fertility numbers, and the time frame in terms of the generations given in Exodus chapter 1, it is one of the mo- it's not necessarily miraculous, but it is on the verge of miraculous that there could be in a period of 400 years, starting off with about, uh, what was it, about 70 individuals that went down with, with uh, Jacob into Egypt, that from 70 individuals over a period of, of uh, about 350 to 400 years that they ended up going into the land with about 2 to 2.5 million Jews. That's, that's remarkable growth. That indicates that there must have been an extremely low infant mortality. God must have protected them from disease. He must have supernaturally taken care of them so that they lived to an old age and so that there was... Um, that they were taken care of even in, in childbirth, that there weren't any diseases or infections so that the nation could survive and grow remarkably in the womb of Egypt. And that's the picture that is used, is that they are in this protective womb or cocoon down in Egypt before God decides to deliver them. And in all of this, we see that the volitional issue always remains the same, and that is a belief that God is going to provide a Savior. That is the salvation issue. And the spiritual life issue has to do with faithfulness to God's revelation as he has given it to that up to that time. Now, there's a large period there where there is silence from the death of Joseph uh, up to the birth of Moses, a period of a little more than 200 years. And we don't know what went on other than the fact that there was tremendous growth within the nation. Well, that concludes the dispensation of the patriarchs and takes us to the next dispensation, which is the dispensation of law based on the Mosaic Covenant. The dispensation of law based on the Mosaic Covenant. So we have looked now at four dispensations. Those four dispensations were human perfection, human conscience, civil government, the age of the patriarchs and promise, and now fifth, the Mosaic Covenant and the dispensation of law. We will look at this under the same kinds of categories we have before, the central scripture, the persons involved, the provisions of the covenant, the token of the covenant, the purposes of the law in relation to Jews, Gentiles, and sin, and then the status of the covenant. So that's the outline for looking at the Mosaic Covenant, and uh, then we will look at the last point after status will be the nature of the dispensation. The first point is the Scripture. The Scripture for the Mosaic Covenant is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, through Deuteronomy 28, 58. Exodus 20, verse 1, through Deuteronomy 28, 58. That's a little large for me to put on the overhead. Just wanted to see if anybody was still awake tonight. I know everybody stayed up watching election returns until 2 or 3 in the morning, and then they got a real surprise when they woke up. I kept fading in and out, and every time I woke up, it was a different president. I didn't know where I was. The scripture, Exodus 20, verse 1 through Deuteronomy 28, 58, includes all of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the covenant proper, what is called the book of the covenant, the scriptural term, the book of the covenant, is in Exodus chapters 20 through 40. Exodus chapter 20 through 40, which begins with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, or sometimes called the Ten Words, which is like a prologue or summary of 
of the entire Mosaic Law. But it is not all of it. There are not just ten commandments. There are 615 commandments. And too often everybody just wants to focus on the the ten and forget the other 605. But you can't separate them. You see, that's one reason. And I'll never forget the first time I was pastoring a church and I made this statement and I almost had a revolt on my hands that the Ten Commandments weren't for today. The reason the Ten Commandments weren't for today is the rest of the life. If you're going to obey any of the Ten Commandments and think any of the Ten Commandments are for today, then you might as well go out in the parking lot and start sacrificing sheep. Because if you're going to say there's no basis for animal sacrifice, then it's all one document. And it either all hangs to, it either hangs together as one document or it, you, you lose the whole document. But you can't come in now and just get out your razor blade and do a uh, little surgery on it and say, well, we're going to take out this section. Now that doesn't apply, but the rest of it applies. It's all one document. The persons involved are God who is party of the first part and Israel as party of the second part. God and Israel. It is signed and sealed by the signature of the Shekinah glory and the shedding of blood. It is God who puts the Shekinah glory in the temple and that is his seal that this is in place and the shedding of blood through the annual sacrifice of the Lamb in the, on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies. Now we come to the provisions. Provisions. I can't read. 613, not 615 commandments. 613 commandments. The law of Moses has 613 commandments, and it is a conditional covenant and contains provisions of blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. Provisions of blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. The key element is blood and the blood sacrifice. You go through Leviticus and you should just be overwhelmed with how bloody it is. Almost every thought, you eat the wrong thing. You touch someone who's been associated with the dead. if, If you went out and went down to Mystic and had lobster or scallops or clams, you would just be spending the next two or three days killing sheep, killing lambs. And you think about how many people there were and, and how many had to bring. If you really were consistent with the law, and every, every family would be spending most of their time going to the temple, sacrificing a lamb or paying for uh, or a bull, bullock or a, or a goat, and you just think about how many animals were involved, you would wonder how they would ever survive and have any prosperity as a nation because they wouldn't have any time to work. They would be spending all of their time sacrificing. And that was the, one of the major functions of the law was to get people to realize how much sin permeated everything in life. Of course, they rationalized it away and worked out systems so they wouldn't have to do it that much. But that was the point of the law was that to emphasize to people that almost everything they touched, everything they did was tainted by sin and would render them ceremonially unclean and they would have to, uh, have to sacrifice uh, something or pay uh, for a turtle dove or some other form of, of offering in order to be rendered ceremonially clean to, to pray or to go into the temple. This is uh, the key verse for the blood is Leviticus 17.11 that uh, life is in the blood. Then God provided a blood sacrifice for uh, certain commands that were violated, but not for every violation of every commandment. Some sins involved the sacrifice of the individual himself. If they committed murder, if they committed rape, then they were the ones who were supposed to die. But the point from Hebrews chapter 10 is that the blood sacrifices never removed the sin. They were never uh, never completely satisfied. They were not capable of satisfying the justice of God, but that they were all just a visual aid portraying the ultimate sacrifice, the, spiritually subs- the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. 
Now, the token, the token is the Sabbath, and I want to spend some time looking at several passages on the Sabbath, so we'll stop here, and we'll come back next time and look at the token of the Sabbath and its significance, because I even know of one uh, Hebrew professor, well-known, head of the department for years, speaks about 30 different languages. One time I, I overheard a conversation with him where he said he still obeyed the Sabbath. Well, how do you do that? He says, well, I, I don't watch football on Sunday afternoon. Brilliant man. Brilliant man. Brilliant um, expositor of the Word. Knows many languages. Written many books. And yet that's the kind of superficiality that is so often brought to, by people who want to maintain a current observance of the Sabbath. It's just this something very superficial that doesn't have anything to do with what God said in Exodus. So we'll look at that next time. Father, we do thank you for this time to look at your word and to see your provision in history and that your plan always goes forward despite human failures and human failings. Father, we pray for our nation that you might continue to guide and strengthen us. We pray that there might be a turn of positive volition to you because that is our only hope. It is not political parties or political persons, not policies or programs. It is a turn to the truth of your word and a positive response to the gospel and advancing in the spiritual life. And so we pray that we might remember what the real priorities are and focus on that and not be distracted by these things that are going on around us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.